Bibles and join me in turning to the book of Revelation, chapter number 12. Revelation, chapter number 12. We've been studying through the book of Revelation, having just studied, quite naturally, Revelation chapter 11 last week, and having pointed, pointed to a single verse within chapter 11, which is the central verse in the book of Revelation. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. This is a, a helpful bit for us to understand and understanding the flow and the structure of the book of Revelation. In good English writing, there'll be an introductory sentence and then some details about that main idea introduced in the introductory sentence and then a summary statement or concluding sentence to close the paragraph. I made a good college career out of writing book reviews, having read the first and last sentence of every paragraph in the book. I don't necessarily recommend that as an approach to academics, but hey, it worked for me. Good English writing can be followed quite well reading the first and last sentence of the paragraph. Often, biblical writing is the exact opposite of good English writing. Rather than having the main idea introduced in the first sentence of a paragraph and then summarized in the conclusion with lesser details smattered in the in-between, usually biblical writing begins with sort of peripheral details and works its way in descending order down to the main point being made in the middle part of the paragraph itself. What's interesting about that is that as the paragraph is working its way down in descending order to that main point, you will then have following the main point in ascending order these parallel statements that further detail the main point that's being made. It's really helpful in interpretation because these parallel statements will complement one another. If there's something in the top of the paragraph that's a little cloudy, we can often look to the end of the paragraph for further clarification as to what's being referenced in the previous example. Now, oftentimes in the Bible, it's not just the middle verse in the paragraph, but the middle chapter in the book or the middle section in a broader section. If you think about it, all of the Bible really works this way. The Bible begins in the Garden of Eden. The Bible ends in the Garden of God. What is undone in the beginning is rectified in the end. What is the main message of the Bible? Found not in the beginning or the end, but in the middle, at the intersection of human history, where Jesus dies on the cross and is raised again on the third day. Virtually all of the Bible is organized this way. So too is Revelation. There is balance between chapters 11 and chapter 12 because of this organizational structure. They parallel one another in some ways. Now, this is not a continued, chronological continuation of chapter 11, rather a backing up and telling from a different perspective. In chapter 11, the perspective was that of the church, experiencing great tribulation as symbolized in those two witnesses. From the perspective of earth, there were trials and difficulties, great hardships, suffering, and even the prospect of martyrdom. What we see now in chapter 12, at the beginning of the second half of the book of Revelation, is a heavenly perspective. 
In other words, chapter 12 tells us what's going on in heaven while the church is suffering here on earth. In fact, the back half of Revelation really has what's referred to as a cosmic or heavenly focus. We see something of the spiritual realm's activity that runs concurrent to the difficulties and hardships experienced by the church from the time of Christ's resurrection until the resurrection of the church. There's another parallel that exists between chapters 11 and, and 12. In chapter 11, our focus was the passion of Christ, specifically that last week of Jesus's life wherein he has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. He dies to pay the penalty for our sin. He takes our place on the cross. The just is given over for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God and he is raised again on the third day. The church is invited to follow after this pattern in our own experience. That with the hope of resurrection in our hearts, we would gladly choose Jesus over life itself. That we would value the treasure that is the gospel, even over our very self-interest, our physical well-being, and if necessary, our very mortal life. We're invited to follow after the pattern of Jesus with the firm expectation that just as God exalted the name of Jesus in the humiliation of the cross, so too he will exalt the church in the humiliation of our persecution and potential martyrdom. When it seems as though the cards are incredibly stacked against us, God has just positioned himself to do a great miracle, to bring about the restoration of the body of Christ and the salvation of many by faith in Jesus Christ. Now the focus of chapter 12 is on the incarnation of Jesus or the birth of Jesus. In fact, the Christmas story is told here in a very revelation-like way. Chances are you've never heard the Christmas story like this. Revelation chapter 12. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read together Revelation 12 beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says here, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, he might devour her child. But she gave birth to a son, a male who was going to shepherd all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be fed there for 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called devil and, the sat and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. They conquer him by the blood of the lamb 
by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives in the face of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows he has a short time. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness, where she was fed for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away in a torrent. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and left to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and have the testimony about Jesus. He stood on the sand of the sea. May God grant understanding. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There are two significant signs introduced in verses 1 through 6 of our passage. The first referenced in verse 1, the Bible says a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. There are so many references to Old Testament passages in Revelation chapter 12, we will barely scratch the surface of those references. But it might be helpful that we note at this point that the imagery of chapter 12 in verse 1 is drawn from the experience of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph was the son of Jacob who received that coat of many colors. One night Joseph had a dream. In that dream he saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to him. The moon being his mother, the sun being his father and those 11 stars standing for his 11 brothers, which would eventually become collectively the 12 tribal heads of the people of Israel. For this dream and its interpretation, his brothers grew jealous, not to mention the coat of many colors. Joseph was thrown into a pit, sold into Egyptian slavery, eventually falsely accused of a sexual assault, thrown into prison, where he tells the future by interpreting the dream of a baker and a butler who promised to get him out if only one of them might be released. As was often the case in Joseph's 13 years of mistreatment, he was yet again forgotten about by the baker and the butler until Pharaoh himself has a dream. The dream is interpreted by Joseph, which secures his deliverance from prison and eventually has him placed in the number two spot in all of Egypt. Joseph becomes, in effect, the prime minister of the nation of Egypt, the prime minister of the world's then most powerful kingdom. And through Joseph's foresight and provision, through his leadership, they're able to store up enough grain and food to survive seven years of severe famine that are going to strike not only Egypt, but the land of Israel to the north as well. Eventually, Joseph's 11 brothers make their way down to Egypt seeking food and relief from the famine. And eventually, the full family of Joseph relocate into the land of Egypt. The suffering and, and the, the, the shame that Joseph would endure over those 13 years of what must have been agony would eventually prove to be the salvation of his very family, the beginnings of the people of Israel. 
what John is indicating here in the use of this symbolism that points to the sun, moon, and stars of Joseph's initial dream is that what we have in Jesus is a new and better Joseph. That what Jesus has secured for us under the new covenant by far surpasses anything that might have been afforded the family of Israel in the days of Joseph's prime ministry in Egypt. This woman is featured here as being clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of stars on her head. In verse 2, the Bible says that she was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Questions are probably already arising in your minds as to who this woman is. It seems most apparent, perhaps the first conclusion that you've reached is that this is Mary, especially in light of my reference to the Christmas story in the beginning. And it seems as though Mary would be an appropriate understanding of who it is, the identity of this unnamed woman in Revelation chapter 12. But probably as much as anything, Mary stands as representative of all of the people of Israel. It is that the Messiah is born individually of Mary, but it is corporately that the Messiah is born of the nation of Israel. In that sense, Mary stands as the figurehead of all of the people of God. And in a broader sense, as we work our way through the passage, Mary stands as the representative figurehead not only of the people of God who are Israel, but the people of God who are of every tribe and tongue and nation. Here is this woman, great with child, on the verge of delivery, representative of all who would entrust themselves to Jesus by faith. Now, The second sign is introduced in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. His tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. You may have questions about the specifics of that description. Seven heads, ten horns, diadems. This is drawn from what is referred to among biblical scholars as traditional material. To find the source of that traditional material, you'll have to continue paying attention until the end of the sermon. We'll come back here. What's important for us to see, the main point thus far in our passage, is that here we have a woman in her most vulnerable state, and here we have a most fearsome figure in the dragon that stands perched and ready to pounce. In her moment of vulnerability, in the susceptibility of infancy, mother and child are, are there, dragon prepared to attack. Mary stands here, this pregnant woman stands here for the people of God. If we're, if we're seeing this through the lens of first century church in Asia Minor. They might say of themselves that the odds are against us. We are in a most vulnerable state. We are at the present hour most susceptible to attack. The devil prowls as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is perched, his fangs revealed, and he is ready to sweep us away. We've little to no defense. We are as indefensible as a woman in the throes of labor pains. And there is the devil, fierce, ready 
seven-headed dragon. I can't think of any position, you mothers could attest to this, more vulnerable, more desperate, more susceptible to attack than a woman in the throes of delivery. And I can scarcely think of anything more frightening than a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. That is the picture. And, and we as the church are to bear witness with that. We find ourselves often in a place of susceptibility, in a moment of vulnerability, when it seems as though there's no recourse, there's no response, there's no defense, there's no protection, there's no hope. That's the scenario. Verse 4 continues. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, he might devour her. Sometimes it's the most basic Bible doctrine that just breaks my brain. Like, God is eternal. He didn't have a beginning. He does not have an end. Like, what are you going to do with that? How about the infancy of Jesus? That God would come down in the flesh and make himself subject to all of the vulnerabilities that come with infancy. With only a mother and father to protect, to nourish, to watch out for. The slightest of illnesses, things that would be no big deal to the average adult, can be a crisis of life in a child's infancy. Jesus makes himself subject not only to the agony of the cross and the difficulties of adult life, but to the vulnerabilities of infancy and childhood and all of the indignity that must come with that. One who hung the earth on its axis, who formed you and I as we are, who put the planets in their courses and flung the stars in the sky, was held in but two hands as an infant in the city of Bethlehem. It would seem as though he's incredibly vulnerable to attack. Verse 5 continues in what can clearly be said to be Biggest understatement in all of the Bible. But she gave birth to a son, a male who was going to shepherd all nations with an iron scepter, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. All of the gospel is captured in verse 5. This child is born, Satan is perched, he is ready. Set up like a labor and delivery doctor ready to devour this child and to persecute his mother. And somehow, by the good providence of God, he is delivered past that trial and temptation. He's protected even in his most susceptible state. He lives without sin. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in absolute perfection in Jesus. He dies as our substitute on the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin for us in order that he might bring us to God. And on the third day, he rose again, ascending to his throne at the right hand of the Father. This is a miracle in and of itself that Jesus would survive the vulnerabilities of infancy by the providence and power of God that he would make an atoning sacrifice of himself. Just when it seemed as though all hope was lost, God would do it again in that Jesus is raised from the dead. Verse 6, the Bible says the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be fed there for 1,000 
260 days. This is that same three and a half year period referenced in Revelation 11, which we dealt with last week. The idea here in verses 1 through 6 is the same as we observed in Revelation chapter 11. That God is protecting his people and providing for their needs even against great odds. It seems often to me that, that God likes to choose what seems on its face to be a losing strategy. Like, turn the other cheek. I can think of far more effective ways of rectifying that situation than turning the other cheek. Or when he says, if you want to be first, you must be last. And if you want to be master of all, you must be servant of all. It's not a terribly expedient way of attaining to leadership to go the Jesus way. There's just so much about what we're called to that seems upside down from the perspective of the world. Or how about saving his people from their sin through the death of his son? In what world is the day God dies on the cross, Good Friday, and yet this losing strategy, at least from our perspective, is the one God chooses to implement. It's like he delights in getting way behind in the fourth quarter in order that he gets all the glory for this miraculous comeback that follows thereafter. The, the message here in the initial verses of Revelation 12, the message to the church is that there, there are and there will inevitably be seasons in life where it feels as though the odds are against you. The cards are stacked against you. You cannot win. God has called you to a losing strategy. There can be no positive outcome. And somehow, some way, God has always and will always be faithful to show up in the midst of your humiliation and to bring about your exaltation by the power of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he does. It's what he does and it's what he continues to do. Look at verse seven. Then, note then. There, there are some transitions in Revelation that are not chronological movements to the next episode. This is clearly a chronological development. Because of what Jesus does on the cross and through his resurrection, verse 7 begins to happen. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. In Job chapter 1, we have this episode where Satan comes before God making an accusation against Job. He is in heaven. I scarcely ever preach or talk about that passage without someone saying, now wait a minute, I thought Satan couldn't be in heaven. What's happening in Job chapter 1? All of heaven changes because of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it is if we fit these two passages together, verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 9, it, it is as though that not only is Satan perched in anxious anticipation of the birth of this child, 
that Satan is perched and all hell with him in anxious anticipation of his death on the cross, believing, convinced that the victory for all of hell had been won until Jesus is raised again. And upon the resurrection of Jesus, war breaks out in heaven. And Satan and his angels are cast to the earth. He's been there described as the accuser of our brothers until now with a justifiable cause. Again and again in our passage, Satan is referred to as the accuser. This is a reference again to the idea of war of words. Not only is the message of Satan, the propaganda of the day, detrimental to our soul to be combated by our message as believers in the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord, but his accusation is damning as well. Satan is there in heaven, hurling accusation after accusation after accusation. You and I might not like the source of the accusation, but you have to concede that the accusation itself is valid. A liar is a liar. Murderer is a murderer. It's a justifiable accusation. Until which time the atoning sacrifice, the proper penalty for our sin is paid, and Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. It is that with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, we are, as followers of Christ, vindicated. We are redeemed. Our sin is atoned for. The penalty is paid through the cross of Christ and his victory in resurrection. War breaks out in heaven. Satan is cast down. This is not to say that things are perfect from this point forward. In fact, there's a, a three-step process whereby Satan is being cast down in the book of Revelation here. He is cast out of heaven to earth. Later, he'll be taken from the earth and thrown into the abyss. And finally, from the abyss, cast into the lake of fire and of brimstone. There is more to the victory secured by our Savior that is yet to be performed. But make no mistake, in the spiritual realm, the victory has been won. Satan exerts his will. He performs his delusions and deceptions here on earth. But he has been purged of heaven. And the victory has forever been secured by our Savior Jesus. Satan is clearly and finally defeated through the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. His fate is forever sealed. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, the accused are vindicated. Satan is forever cast out of heaven. Practically speaking, when it feels as though that lion who prowls about seeking whom he may devour is hot on your trail, and maybe his fangs have found their way to your calf, you need to be reminded that though that pain may last a season, that the victory has been secured by our Savior, Jesus. That a day is soon coming when the heavenly reality unfolds in our earthly experience. Full and final victory over Satan forever. Occasionally, I make reference to this from time to time, but occasionally I'll come across someone who has this view of Revelation or the world in general. Where there's this cosmic battle between good and evil and some days God wins and good things happen and some days Satan wins and bad things happen. No, there is no cosmic battle. The war is over. The battle has been won. Jesus is the victor. And by faith in him, we have the tremendous privilege of being enjoined with that victory. Look at verse 10. 
I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out. The one who accuses them before our God night and day. Now listen to verse 11. They, who is they, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives in the face of death. The they and the there and the them of verse number 11 is all who would entrust their soul to Jesus, who would value what we have in Christ by the power of the gospel, even above life itself. We have been enjoined with Jesus in this victory over death and hell and the grave and the source of death and hell and graves. Satan himself through the cross of Christ by our testimony, by the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And because we love not our lives unto death, saints past and present and future, the victory is ours. We are participating in that Victory, soldiers in the army of our God, a gathering of those who love not their lives unto death. The accused have, have been redeemed and now joined together with Jesus in this remarkable victory. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows he has a short time. And I don't, I don't know why bad things happen the way that they do. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. S sometimes things happen and we think we know and we try to provide explanations. And I'm quite convinced that heaven just chuckles. You might be aware of one or two or three or four or five things that God is doing in your life while he's doing a million things. And often the things we assume him to be doing through a given scenario may, may be the opposite of what God is doing in reality in our life. But I know that he's called us to a life that runs parallel to that of his son, Jesus. I can't fathom how the only begotten son of God in the flesh would have the beard plucked from his face, a crown of thorns pressed about his brow, nails beaten through his hands and his feet, bearing the pain and the agony of the cross, suffocating to death there on the cross, having been whipped with a cat of nine tails. I can't imagine how the only begotten Son of God could be faced with such a fate, such an experience, the agony that he must have endured, and the sheer evil, the sheer wickedness that's bound up in that moment as the only one undeserving of punishment received punishment on our behalf. I don't know how that could be right or good or noble. But somehow God turns the table and brings something immeasurably glorious out of that dreadful occasion. And so too God intends that our lives would follow the same course. But sometimes faced with dreadful, agonizing outcomes that God would turn the tables and bring something immeasurably glorious out of our experience. The Bible doesn't really engage in conjecture with regards to the philosophical problem of evil. God just moves to do something about it. Make no mistake, there'll be hardships and difficulties in this life. Satan knows he has a short time. Don't confuse that with somehow a victory having been lost or the failure of Jesus to secure battle. Look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown to earth, 
He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was fed for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth, war of words, from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away in a torrent. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and left to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and have a testimony about Jesus. So here again, the woman, representative figurehead of all of the people of God, is chased after, persecuted by the dragon. But God gives her the wings of an eagle, the first symbol or image in this series of verses, this paragraph, verses 13 through 17. The imagery of these verses all comes from a single source. It comes from the Exodus. In fact, in Exodus 19.4, God said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This mother is driven into the wilderness where God provides for her and protects her and meets all her needs. At once, the dragon comes after her, spewing forth a great river from his mouth, but the earth helps her, opens up, and it swallows this river intended to bring a torrent on this mother, this representative figurehead of all of the people of God. The language that is used there is similar to the language that's used in the Exodus event as God opens the ground in the book of Numbers and consumes those who have opposed his purpose among the people of Israel. There are other indicators here. The way her needs are met in the wilderness runs parallel to the experiences of Israel in the wilderness as God provided for them bread from heaven and quail from the west in order to meet their needs, the hunger they experienced and how he gave them water from a rock and shelter by day and light by night. God was meeting all of their needs, and so many of those references occur here in the close of Revelation chapter 12. What's being expressed here it makes me think of the Mount of Transfiguration passage in the Gospel of Luke, where the Bible says that Jesus, in conversation with Moses and Elijah, discussed his departure. The Greek word there for departure is exodus. Jesus discussed with Moses and Elijah a new and better exodus for the people of God. And so to hear what is described for the people of God is a new and better exodus. If you think about the experiences of the Israelites, if you stopped an Israelite 20 years into their wilderness wanderings and questioned them, who are you, where are you from, what are you doing, and where are you headed? Well, we were slaves. We were in bondage in Egypt. But God moved supernaturally to bring about our deliverance. When he did, we took shelter behind the blood of the Passover lamb. God protected us there. And he brought us out, delivering us from our slavery, from our bondage. We're out here in the wilderness, wandering around, learning lessons, because we're stubborn and foolish. And occasionally we look back to those experiences in Egypt as though they were the good old days. From time to time you'll catch us saying things like, it was better for us back in Egypt than left to starve and die in the wilderness. We're a work in progress. 
We're not what God intends us to be, but we're headed in that direction. In fact, we're headed toward a land that flows with milk and honey. There's going to come a day after the passing of this generation when we cross over the River Jordan and we inhabit forever the land that God had promised we would inhabit, the promised land. It's not that far from the experience of a new covenant Christian, is it? Here we are, having been delivered from our bondage to sin, having taken our shelter behind the blood of the Lamb, in the throes of our wilderness wandering, often foolish and stubborn and stiff-necked and hard-headed. Occasionally, you'll catch us looking back to the old days as though they were the good old days, forgetting of the power of God and His constant provision and protection over our lives. We're not who God intends us to be forever, but we're headed in that direction. And one day, like the people of Israel, we'll cross over the River Jordan. We'll inherit a land to inhabit forever, land that flows with milk and honey, land in the perfect presence of the one who bled and died to grant this new and better exodus, the second Moses, who delivered not the law, but grace, and grace that's greater than our sin. What we have in this new exodus is a new covenant by a new and better Moses, and his name is Jesus. I mentioned to you earlier, there's some material back in verses 3 and 4 referred to as traditional material. Traditional material in biblical scholarship can come from any tradition. It can have any source. In this particular instance, the source is Greek mythology. You may be troubled by the idea of John using Greek mythology in a biblical text, but if you'll stay with me, I think you'll be greatly encouraged by what John's up to here. What John is doing is using Greek mythology to counter the propaganda of the day. In fact, he frames the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus in such a way as to provide a stark contrast to what was believed by many pagans in the Roman Empire. During the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, the churches in Asia Minor were suffering under the leadership of an emperor known as Domitian. Domitian is not necessarily a noteworthy figure in history, except that he's almost always connected to Nero. If you know world history, you probably know something about Nero and his persecution of the Christians. Nero is credited with the death of both Peter and Paul in 64 and 65. He reigned over the Roman Empire about 30 years before Domitian. Nero was a crazy person, and Domitian was a crazy person. In fact, many referred to Domitian as the second, as the second coming of Nero. Often Roman emperors would identify themselves with some god from Greco-Roman mythological culture. In the case of Domitian, he identified himself as Apollos. Now, you may remember a couple of chapters ago in Revelation, there is that reference in Hebrew, his name is Abaddon. In Greek, his name is Apollyon. In Hebrew, it means destruction. In Greek, it means destroyer. And it is derived from that Greek name, Apollos. Now, here's what you need to know about the legend or the myth of Apollos. There came a point in time in Greek mythology when Zeus came together with a goddess known as Zeta. 
And the child that was born, the child that was conceived as a result of Zeus and Zeta coming together, was to be Apollos. Only in Greek mythology, the great dragon Python was perched and anxiously awaiting the birth of that child, Apollos, in order that he might be destroyed immediately upon his delivery. The myth goes that Apollos grew in strength and stature within days of being born, and he eventually conquered evil, the personification of evil, which was Python, the great dragon. Now, Domitian identified himself with Apollos for a variety of different reasons, not the least of which was to say that the true source of peace is the Roman Empire. And by the way, I am a son of the gods, therefore I am deserving of the worship of the people. And moreover, I am the God who is responsible for conquering evil. All you need now to do is to take your shelter beneath the eagle's wings of the great and vast Roman Empire. Now what John has done in framing the story of the gospel in this way is to answer Domitian's propaganda, noting for us that true peace will never be found in the Roman Empire or any earthly kingdom, but is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And to say with great punctuation that there is but one Son of God and His name is Jesus, clothed in flesh, come to carry our sin away. He is the only begotten Son of God. There's only one to be credited with conquering evil, the death, the hell, and the grave that results therefrom. And His name is Jesus. What John has done is a master class in the defense of the gospel and answering the objections of propaganda in every era, in every generation, in every culture. Our kids, you adults, are being bombarded with so much misinformation. It's, it's telling that a part of the vernacular in the past decade is now fake news. I don't really have any desire to get sucked into certain elements of that. But you, you need to be aware that one of the trademarks of our culture, not just politically, but in every sphere of our society, is deception. A radical insistence that if you simply say a falsehood enough times, it will be embraced. And no matter how indefensible the falsehood may seem to be or is obvious on its face, culture will rally together and defend as truth what is so clearly false. The invitation of John in Revelation 12, as he exhorts us in the message of the gospel, is that we needn't succumb to such propaganda. Jesus is the everlasting source of peace. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and Jesus has conquered evil on behalf of the church. Are you encouraged and refreshed? The victory is ours. It's ours. There's just something about knowing the end from the beginning that I find so remarkably encouraging. If, if you know me very well, you know that I am a sports fan sometimes, too much a sports fan sometimes. Uh, obsessively a sports fan, and sometimes a sports fan that needs to repent of his sports fandom. 
But at this stage in my life, I'm often busy enough that I have to miss certain things, certain things that I would rather be watching live. I can remember as a, as a teenager, it seemed a foolish thing to me to record sporting events. It just didn't feel the same. But as a 40-year-old man with three children and a wife who like to see their husband and father from time to time, I, I find myself recording sporting events. And, and it still, in the words of, of my teenage self, feels different. Like if, if, I, if I know the outcome, I just feel, for a moment I'm watching and, I, and I'm, I'm grumbling, I'm complaining, that's a, that's a terrible pitch call, who would do that? He can't throw, why would you bring him in? Why would you do what you're doing in this particular moment? He can't defend, get him out of there, get someone else, someone else needs to run point. Why would we run that on third down? It makes absolutely no sense. And then I remember, we won, it's all good. Chill out, wait, going to be good. I'm, I'm sitting there, and in a moment, I can be, I'm, I'm looking at what I see, and it seems dangerous, it seems headed in the wrong direction, it doesn't seem to be the kind of thing we're looking for. Hey, we win. There are times in life when you look around and it seems dangerous, things seem foolish, you wonder why in the world is this going on? This is not the play I would have chosen to run under these circumstances. But hey, we win. I'm encouraged at that. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your truth, for your word, for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Work and move among us. May our response to the preaching of your word and the message of the gospel be fitting of the king we know our Savior Jesus to be. We ask it in the power of his name.